Um, yeah. All right, so tonight, the final lecture, uh, Simone Weil, a, a philosopher, she was very much influential immediate, in the immediate post-war era. Um, and, and people like T.S. Eliot uh, very much interested in and uh, responded to her thought. Uh, I thought she would be a good person to end on, perhaps slightly less known, um, but would be much better known in France and England, not as well known in America, although she has had considerable influence here, particularly in Catholic circles, Jesuit circles. Um, also because I think you know, there are female philosophers who never get much play, so I thought she would be a, another a good, a good female philosopher to go with along with Simone de Beauvoir, who, with whom she did not get along. They did not like each other. If you, if you read her little biography, um, Simone de Beauvoir took second to Sartre at basically her university exams and second to Simone Weil in her sort of entrance exams, which is, that's rough competition. You know? <laughs> it's, it's not fair. She, needed a, you know, she should have gotten a first on at least one of those. But, uh, so, so very bright woman. Um, all right, so... Simone Weil, 1909-1943. Anybody familiar with the history of those years will recognize a trying time to be born and to grow up and to live. Perhaps all times are trying, but really that is a particularly trying time to be alive. Generally called the interregnum, the space between the two wars, um, which are are now being increasingly considered to be one war. And I think that's a much more accurate view, that World War I started in... You know, 1914 and ended in 1947. Uh, probably a more accurate conception of what what happened in those years. 45. Is that 45 really? Yes. Yeah. What happened in 47? Anyway, it doesn't matter. 45. Something, something was going on until 47, but we'll call it 45. Um, oh, China. China was still going on. China was going on until much later. We talked about the Civil War. No, no. The, the war, so, uh, anyway, 45. We'll go with 45. We'll go with 45. Stick with 45. We'll stick with 45. I'll check that. Um, so it, first it's important to understand that time period. So uh, when she was a child, at one point she went on a kind of hunger strike uh, because of the troops who were suffering at the front on limited rations. Very early on, she had this notion of shared suffering, and we'll return to that many times this evening. Um, as she grew up, you have the, you know, the communist revolution, you have the end of World War One, you have all the social unrest in all of Europe because of the depression that followed the war, you had a turnover in governments, you had, of course, what was going on in Germany famously, but what was going on in Germany was mirrored in every other European country. Only England really escaped without major social upheaval at that time. Italy, France, the Benelux countries, they were all under great strain um, politically because of the uh, nature of the war and and what was left after the war. Economic dislocation, not the least of these. Second, she was born into the bourgeoisie. and this is a concept that we don't actually have, we've never had a bourgeoisie in America. We often translate this as the middle class, but it, it doesn't really equate with the middle class um, in, in Europe. It was a particular way of living and the way of looking at the world. Um, and three features, I mean, many features, and this is all very you know, loose, but uh, three key features. One, and, and we can't even hardly imagine this anymore, was privacy. Um, what the whole point of being uh, a bourgeois was to be private. 
The lower classes, the working classes, the peasants, still tended to live and work communally. 5, 10, 15, 20 people to a house, a living space, whatever. I mean, it was, you were jammed together, no privacy. The nobility never lived privately. They had no interest in privacy. They didn't know, they had, why would you be private? I, I think the best example of this is if you were the most intimate with the king, say Louis XIV, you were the people who sat with him and he went to the bathroom in the morning. You were of his toilet. That meant that he, when he dressed, when he went literally to the bathroom, you could sit with him and talk to him and spend time with him. Which, right, I mean, that's not our concept of privacy. <laughs> and so the notion of doing things outside the eyes of others really comes to us from the bourgeoisie. And we've completely abandoned this. Um, this, this, is, this is gone. In the age of Facebook and the internet and fame and notoriety, we've just left that in the dust. But for her period, that was one of the most important aspects of this. Education, another aspect of this. What makes you a valuable human being? It's not birth, because that's the nobility. They gain value through uh, birth. It's not money, although money is very important, but because everybody knew that the nobles are rich, although usually bankrupt and rich, uh, and that had nothing to do with their value or qualities of human beings. And many sort of ruthless peasants or wily peasants, as they like to call them, would gain wealth, and people didn't like them either. Um, and so there wasn't wealth. So what could you have to set yourself apart from both, again, the first estate, or the second estate, the nobles, um, the first estate being the clergy, uh, and sort of the paupers, the peasants, the factory workers? Well, education, because you earn it yourself. You aren't given an education. You make an education for yourself from your own labors. And so this is the field where the bourgeoisie prove themselves. So getting an education was not a matter of advancement. Or it was how you became a member of that society and sustained that uh, and all the things that had to do with it. So education is hugely important. Uh, and finally, it was family and the extended sense of family, which also extended because of the importance of education to your school friends in a way that, that really does in the United States. Um, and if you read virtually anybody's letters from this period, but Simone de Beauvoir's are, are particularly uh, interesting in this, in this respect, you wrote to your family, your cousins, and the friends that you had from school and their families in, in an incredibly tight way. Other than that, you didn't. I mean, you really almost didn't communicate with other people. But you have at one moment when um, Simone de Beauvoir wants to come from the United States back to France because she wants to fight very badly against the German occupation. Yes? Weil? Simone, Simone Weil, yeah. Or Weil, Weil or Weil? You keep saying de Beauvoir. Oh, I'm sorry. Simone Weil. I'm sorry. Sorry, it's the damn first name. Simone Weil. Thank you. Simone Weil. This is all about Simone Weil. Simone Weil wants to come from the United States back to France to fight the Germans. She definitely wants to fight the Germans. She goes to a school friend and she says, you know the ambassador from, from the Vichy France to America. Will you talk to him and get me shipped back? And he's like, sure. Absolutely, because we were in school together. This is what you do with the people who were in school together. And that's how you knew everybody. You got introduced by them to other people. And so it was a very tight system. 
You knew people from school, you knew your family, you knew your relatives, you knew their extended friends. So you might know a lot of people in a lot of places, but a very tight grouping. Um, so that's the bourgeoisie, sort of a limited idea of that. <coughs> so when Simone is born, obviously 1909, again, a very tempestuous period, uh, she's born into a, a middle-class bourgeois um, Jewish family, although they're assimilated Jews, um, not very much practicing. Her grandparents on her mother's side were, were, were pretty moderately orthodox, I would say, not very orthodox. But not much of that trickled down. Um, and yet, there is still the question, as always at that time, of being Jewish, which she returned to again and again in her life, a very vexed question for her. She leaves a traditional, very straightforward education, um, sometimes at home, but usually in the public school system, very nice in France. Um, she had many friends, but from an early time, everybody remarked on her difference. She, her, her, the woman who raised her, sort of her nanny, said that she never knew Simone to play with dolls, ever. Couldn't get her to sew. Um, she was happy, said she wasn't unhappy, but she would, when she was even in elementary school, she'd wake up in the middle of the night to complete her homework. Because she just couldn't sleep well if all of her homework wasn't done for the next day, the next day, and the day after that. So she was always very far ahead, but literally at like two or three in the morning, she would get up and you know, start working away very hard on her assignments. Um, voracious reader. Uh, and brilliant. Ah, but not nearly as brilliant as her slightly older brother who was, became one of the most famous mathematicians of, of his time and ended up at the Institute of Advanced Studies with Einstein. Um, and so there was always a bit of a tension there for her because she recognized that as brilliant as she was, she wasn't truly a genius and she never considered herself as such. And so she didn't see her future as being the educated person of, you know, sort of traditional scholastic genius, although she was, again, very good. First, first in her class in the exams, you know, beating out Simone de Beauvoir, so that's pretty, pretty nice. Um, but her issue from the very beginning was suffering. This is the question that we have to talk about with Simone Lyle. Why is there suffering in the world, and what does one do about it? There it is. How do we make sense of the fact that here I am, comfortable, loved, coddled, well-educated, middle-class young woman, and somewhere in the world, wherever it was, it didn't matter to her, it seems, people are suffering. French soldiers at the front, uh, the uh, people who are colonies, the French colonies, Algeria, Southeast Asia, someone is suffering, and I'm not. How do I make sense of that in the world? And she struggled with this her entire life. It's not clear she's ever, 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 ever able to answer that. But this was the central question with which she tried to deal. Her first attempt, although even as a child, again, she was obsessed with this, but her first attempt was through party politics. And she invested herself wholesale in this. Now, this is a time, again, we've had the Russian Revolution. Nationalism is viewed as an evil thing. You do not want to be a nationalist. To the point where um, one of her school friends, this, this is when she's in college, was asked, would you take up a collection for, I think, war veterans? And she said, mm, okay. So she goes to the place where you pick up your collection box, and I guess they do this once a year, or did at that time, and they gave her a small French flag to put on her lapel as she went around. So she's like, well, okay, I'll put a French flag on. And so she did that and raised money for the war veterans, and when she got back, People heard about this, 
And so they broke into her room and decorated it with all these, you know, sort of super patriotic flags and posters and everything to mock her because she had put a little French flag on her lapel. This meant that you are just hopelessly, you're just hopeless nationalist. Nationalism is dead. That's past. We hate France. France is nothing. What is, is the revolution. The revolution is going to come and cure all ills. It's going to purify society. It's going to set us free. And it's going to set us free because it's going to get rid of the overlords, whoever they are. It depends, you know, if you're a hardcore Marxist, which you never was, you know, then it's the capitalist system. If it's, um, you know, other people felt it was the domination of the war interests. You know, but it was the notion of now's our opportunity. We're finally going to purify, cleanse. Her language is always of purifying and cleansing and getting rid of and eliminating the evil aspects, the thing that makes the world bad. And so she invests herself while studying very hard in school. She is busy working for like uh, the various unions that are going on. And, and I tried to keep track of the unions, and then I had to get, give, give up because they all have four, five, or six-letter acronyms like the CGTSPD, which are abbreviations of French words, which I can't remember anyway. And there's like 90 of them, literally, and they're all switching allegiances all the time. And it's this huge political wrangle. And so, for instance, she goes out and marches with the workers, which is not done. Why? Because we don't know any workers. <laughs> who are these workers? Her mother would write a letter saying, who, not, it's bad to strike, which they were suspicious about, but who are these people? We don't know them. We've never met them. What's going on? And this really upset her parents. Her parents were just permanently upset with her. Uh, she, I, she would be a terrifying daughter, I would think. Um, she, she, she just struggled, really worked hard, threw herself into this. Um, and she said, oh, here's our chance. We'll form a party. That party will throw over, overthrow the government. We'll have a new government, which will then be internationalist, because everybody's clear nationalism is dead and stupid. Um, and will perfect the world from there. Jackpot. Ah. So she writes about this, published articles, argues about this. A few problems begin to creep in as she goes along. One, she noticed this tendency towards bureaucracy. And one of her slogans became, revolution without bureaucracy. Because <laughs> she realized that, that, you know, you get ten people together, somebody needs to be a secretary and take notes, and somebody needs to be a president, and then you've got to publish them, and then you have to have rules for voting, and before you know it, you may as well have the French government that you had already. <laughs> and so she begins thinking very hard on how do you have parties and governments without any kind of bureaucracy. Uh, some of her ideas, in, in, interestingly enough, reproduce many aspects of the American system, which is a balance of powers um, in, in very great detail. Other aspects were a little terrifying, where she thought, no, we'll just have a judicial branch, and the judges will decide everything. Very sort of Socratic in this notion of these enlightened people who will, or Platonic, actually, these enlightened people who will rule everybody else, and they'll know the right, and they'll enforce the right. Um, but she played with all these, and she could never quite solve it, and it frustrated her immensely. Um, and so about this time that she's getting immensely frustrated, she, she's, a, she's also graduating from college. She's finishing up her Lycee education, where she did excellent, much to the frustration of many of her parents, professors. Many of her professors enjoyed her very much, but she's also quite challenging. She had a tendency to 
dismiss you out of hand and say you're talking nonsense and, and really always by, by half the most intense person around. right? And she's very focused that way. Um, so by the time she graduates, party politics has really waned for her. Russia has gone very wrong. right? In early 30s, Russia, hey, that's going to be the salvation, late 20s, early 30s. By the early to mid-30s, most observant intellectuals who aren't totally, you know, just uh, religious about their, their communism have recognized that, that Stalin, mm, not the nicest guy around, the system has got some problems. Um, she's also trying to figure out what do you do with a rearming Germany? Because along with nationalism being dead, war is also an evil, clearly an evil. So that only leaves pacifism. But Every attempt to pacify Germany kept failing. And this started to raise the stakes. And she hung on very long to that idea. Even the Munich Accords, she thought, were pretty good because at least that's a chance to avoid war. Um, but it, she started to really struggle with it. She didn't know what to make of it. <coughs> so now she moves from the, the political movements, which she never quite abandoned, but she really pulls back from that. And she begins teaching... Um, at a girls' school, and also becomes much more interested in getting real experience. She decides, you know, parties are not the salvation. That's not the way of the future. What we have to do is get in touch with the actual workers. So she gets a job in a factory. Now, this is troublesome in a number of ways, because one, no one was less apt to do well in a factory than Simone Biles. Uh, <laughs> awkward, sickly, subject to headaches, um, uncoordinated and nearsighted. No manual skills at all. But of course she knew through friends a guy who owned a factory, so he arranged for her to be allowed to hire into her factory. And he immediately, unbeknownst to her, told the foreman, look, make sure she doesn't kill herself. <laughs> Give her some machine where she can't really do too much harm. Uh, but she did not know this. So she begins working at a factory. Um, and she discovers many problems with this. One, it's hard. It's really hard. And the fear, sheer physical punishment that it was involved in work standing and working these machines hour after hour, day after day, she just couldn't, physically she just wasn't up to the challenge. Also, she was there to suffer. She wanted to suffer with the workers. But the workers, to a person, male and female, had no interest in suffering. <laughs> so they did things like they took breaks, they brought large lunches and beer. <laughs> and they would say, look, don't you want to eat something? And she's like, no, no, you know, no, I'll just work. And they're like, but it's break time. <laughs> it's like, but I want to suffer with the workers. And they're like... You know, we're the workers and we're not interested in suffering. We're going to take a break, eat some cheese and sausage, and drink beer. That's our plan. And so she could never quite, she was not of them. She could never quite reconcile her place with them because she wasn't a factory worker. And they all knew it, of course. They tried to take care of her and make sure she didn't get injured. Um, and so she discovers also that it was being watched and ordered about all the time and doing labor that you have no investment in. Uh, she found it very degrading. I mean, this is really, she's always been interested in religion, but her, her thoughts really start turning to religion at this point. Um, she'll have a major breakthrough later, but she writes, quoting Pascal, and, and she f finds this very important, sort of her paraphrase of Pascal. She says, what makes 
our experience have human value? What what are what what experience give the human value? Right? I want you to ponder what your answer to that would be. What are the experiences that humans have that give them value? Humiliation, degradation, slavery, <laughs> sin, and error. That's a great list. Let me give that list. Humiliation, degradation, slavery, sin, and error. Those are the experiences that give the humans value. She says, this is the great idea that is at the bottom of the Catholic religion. And she means that in the most positive sense. This is not a criticism. And why? Why is that? Ah, because she felt that suffering. In a sense, she approaches Buddhism here. If the world is primarily suffering, then it is when you are suffering that you are most in touch with what is real. So, So the idea is the suffering makes you and the world and your experience of the world real. But she wants to alleviate suffering. So how do you do that? Mm, She still doesn't know. Uh, But she figures out after not too long that one of the problems with the workers is they're not really in any condition to take over the world. (laughs) She becomes quickly, but but quite realistically, but imagine, remember at this time you have communist Russia, and you have huge parties in France, all over Europe, really, who are premised on the notion of we're going to overthrow the government for the workers, and the workers are going to lead the future. And, and she just starts writing her friends saying, look, the workers aren't educated, they're not organized, they have no interest in leading the country, they wouldn't know what to do if they did. Many of them can't read. They aren't bad people. She's living with them, she likes them. She just... If you you can't give them a government, what would they do? So she becomes very sort of disillusioned, both with herself, because she realizes that, you know, I'm really not a worker. Uh, And with the workers, not in the sense of they're being bad people, but it's like this whole plan of a revolution that's going to raise these people up to run the... Oh, damn, she's like, that's not going to work. Plus they showed no interest in suffering, which she found sort of... She's like, come on! It's also important to know at this time, though, too, as bad as the factories were, many of them were terrible, but many of them were a vast improvement from if you were a peasant. And so if you were the first generation that moved from farms where you were subject to periodic starvation, particularly because of the great economic crisis, into a factory where you knew you had enough money for food, clothes, and and good shelter, and somebody said, oh, I want to starve, they're like, why? If you want to starve, go back to the farm I came from. We worked all day and night and starved. Here we work all day and night and we have good food and a warm house and look, clothes, it's great. And, and so this sort of threw off her, her ideas. But she keeps searching. This is the key thing with her. She never stops at the easy answer. She doesn't go for communism because she recognizes its flaw. She doesn't go for the socialist <coughs> utopia because she recognizes its flaw. Through her own experiences. Very self-critical. She looks at herself and says, you know, this isn't right. My ideas were wrong. I've got to revisit them. It's very intense that way. Um, So the Spanish Civil War comes along at this time. Of course, all kinds of things are going wrong at this point in Europe. Um, What do you do about the Spanish Civil War? Well, if you're Simone Weil, you think, ha, here's the chance. I'm going to volunteer, go to Spain, and fight for the resistance. Yes. Uh, Very idealistic. Um, very brave, um, and for a nearsighted, clumsy, sickly woman <laughs> of dubious help, which is what she encountered when she got to the resistance. She showed up, and they're like, yes, I want to fight with you. And they're like, 
Do you know how to fire a gun? She's like, nope. Can you see my hands? Nope. <laughs> how do you feel? I'm going to pass out. I have a headache. <laughs> and they're like, all right. Uh, we really don't want you. But she insisted so aggressively that they said, all right. And they put her in a military unit. And she went out on patrol, literal, real patrols where people could get killed. And in fact, later, her entire unit was wiped out. Um, but by that time, she had injured herself by stepping in a fire um, that she couldn't see because she's horribly nearsighted. Um, and so they, that, that way, they're able to get her off of the front. In fact, her parents smuggled themselves into Spain to rescue her out of the country so she could get medical help. And this is one of the tensions in her life because, again, she turns out to really be bourgeoisie. I mean, she would get into trouble and her parents would show up and take her home and get doctors and fix her up. And then she would say, no, no, I'm not bourgeois. And then she'd go back out again. Um, But this, again, she really wanted to be out there fighting. She really had this notion of sacrifice. It's it's right around this period. We don't know exactly the dates because many of her letters uh, were undated and many of them come from journals that were also undated. Uh, But she had... um, a, a mystical experience. Essentially, God came to her. Um, very palpable physically, and if you read the history of mystical experiences, for instance, William James' history of religious writings, of religious experience, it's, it's a classic textbook example. She had a physical visitation of what she took to be God. And so this sort of shook her thinking up a little bit, as I imagine it would. Um, and she turns very much more clearly to trying to figure out what do you do about suffering, but now I've worked, she's worked from party politics, this was not good. The workers, that didn't work for her. Uh, Armed resistance, you know, this is all problematic. She became disenchanted with the soldiers, and and it turns out that killing, no matter who's doing it, is bloody and horrible. Um, and, And finally she comes around to start really thinking carefully about religion, which is to say a personal relationship between an individual and a god. Now notice this is hugely different. Not about family, not about society, not about political parties, or or that. It becomes totally, almost totally personal at this point. Um, And so she she begins researching this. And it's important to note she is not uncritical about, in this case, Christianity and Catholicism. And she became a great reader of the Bible. And a couple of passages that jumped out of her that bothered her very much uh, one is uh, 1 Samuel 15, 3 through 33, uh, which is a story of, if, if you read the Old Testament, it's filled with these kinds of things, but these were two that she noted. Saul and the Alchemites. So God comes to Saul and says, look, when we fled from Egypt, we being the Jews, um, the Alchemites did not help us very much. They were, they, were, they were mean to us, so I want you to kill them. All of them. Men, women, children, nurslings, meaning infants, cows, Camels, goats, and sheep. I want them all dead. And so Saul goes out and kills everybody but the king, who he saves, um, and some goats and sheep that he's going to use to sacrifice to God because, you know, he's done his thing, and I'll take these goats and sheep and sacrifice them. So as Saul says, I've saved the good, left the bad, uh, killed, killed the bad, and then we'll cleanse with the sacrifice and life will be good. And a prophet, I think Samuel, yes, is it the book of Samuel? Yes, the book of Samuel. So the prophet Samuel, God sends Samuel to him and says, look, you've messed up. I said, kill everybody. And you didn't kill everybody. 
And Saul says, well, I saved the good stuff. No, I didn't say save the good stuff. I said kill everybody. And Simone says, you know, I struggle with that. <laughs> I want, I mean, really, it's a real question, right? If, if I want to relieve suffering in the world, how do I endorse this concept of a God who's just going to say slaughter everything and everybody without question, without sorting, without merit, with nothing, just I want them all dead. Uh, perhaps even more disturbing one comes in Kings, Kings 2, 23-24. Um, it's a story of the prophet Elisha. And Elisha is walking through a, a city. And as he leaves the city, um, a group of children gather and start teasing him because he's bald. So they call him, it is, there's all these interesting translations of this, but they call him, oh, you're bald or baldy or you're the bald one or you're all bald on top. And so Elisha curses the children. And God sends two bears out of the words who comes out and dismembers 42 of them. <laughs> As a warning, right? Don't tease the prophet. <laughs> and again, Simone is like, look, I don't know how to respond to a world in which this is your concept of God. Right? I've had this experience of God, now I've got to figure out what it is. I don't really like the Old Testament God, she decides. If there's a God that sends a bear out to kill 42 children for teasing old men, I want no part of it. But, you know, now she's got to work this out. Um, and she begins to move very swiftly towards what's called Catharism, um, uh, which is a type of, of Gnosticism, very, you know, this is obscure sort of liturgical ideas. But the, the central part of it uh, of, is that God has left. God has left the building. Right? Uh, he has created the world and, and is gone. It has nothing to do with the world. The world is, is completely done. And that is to give us freedom. Because if God is here, all-knowing, all-seeing, omnipotent, all-powerful, what are we? We're just slaves. And so God sacrifices his capacity to intervene in the world and control the world and rule the world to give us freedom, the opportunity to act. But this means that in the world, according to Simone Weil, there is no good, there's no evil either. It's just necessity. If the bear kills the children in the woods, it's just necessarily so. You can't make heads nor tails of it. It almost becomes impossible to make any judgment about this. This is how inwardly she begins to look. And so she begins formulating a very different conception of God that I want to talk about in a second. Um, but people, uh, I've been reading around in several books, of course, preparing for this, and I recognize that there was an error in this. There's an error is the notion that she had this visitation and then she became interested in religion. This is, really, this is not true. If you're reading Simone Weil, it's very early on. Um, and I wanted you to look at it. You'll open your little things there. This is her list of temptations that she's trying to overcome. Now, she's in her early 20s when she makes this list. So I want you to close your eyes. Don't read the list yet. And you're in your early 20s. Now, make your list of temptations <laughs> you're going to try to overcome. Seriously. I'm serious about that. You can keep them to yourself. That's fine. But, but, but make that list and then see if any of them correspond with Simone's list. 
Her list is the temptation of idleness. Flight from real life with its limitations and from time the essential limitation. The notion of to be idle, to not be maximally productive at every moment. Two, the temptation of the inner life. All emotions that are not absorbed immediately by methodological thought and effective action. So this was a type of idleness. No reverie, no daydreaming, no imagination. No. It's got to be assimilated, acted upon, or else it's a distraction. The temptation of domination to want to exert power or authority over another person. So to to free herself from that. The temptation to self-sacrifice. And this is important because what she means by self-sacrifice is very interesting. Uh, Which is subordination to any object whatsoever. Not only everything that is subjective, but the subject itself. Uh, She meant by self-sacrifice. She didn't mean personal suffering. She loved to suffer. That was one of her favorite things. She meant like you don't want to fall in love with somebody. Because then you're giving over a part of you to another person. And you never want to do that. You want to maintain yourself wholly inviolable. Uh, And she was so cool towards other people because of this um, that they called her in college, they called her the Red Virgin. Because she was an arch-communist and she was totally virginal. Uh, To the point where like one of her friends wrote that she remembers one time that Simone touched her. And she thought, ah, I remember that. Because I was amazed. Because I don't remember ever seeing her touch anybody. Because she wanted to maintain herself as this pure, inviolable whole. And she writes after that, I am not really free of any of these five. Really, there you go. But only one I have not been able to overcome at all is idleness. And at 25, it is quite late. One should have become at 25 months. Liberation from these five temptations is the very purity for which you thirst. So already at 25, her notion is purity. And it's a particular kind of notion of purity, by the way, that she is drawing from uh, the the medieval uh, tradition of cloistering nuns and monks, but particularly nuns. People heard of cloistered nuns? So they would be in convents. Now, convents are slightly different. That's where nuns would go in and live in cloistering of nuns. They were totally cut off from the outside world. There would be a grill that the mother superior might take food and stuff in and out from the outside world, but completely cut off. Even more than this, many of the nuns would then put themselves in their cells more or less permanently. So they would enter a state of permanent, solitary confinement. They wouldn't talk to anybody. They would just have food, very small amounts, pushed through their door every day. That was it. And, the, and their cells would be, you know, these cells still exist like this big. Um, and for years, they would stay, years and years. This was voluntary. Um, but they would do this for years and years. And she is drawing these sorts of notions. Well, why would you do that? Ah, to purify the self. To create a self that is totally and completely separated from the world. She called this uncreation. This this attempt to withdraw completely. And uncreate yourself. Why? Ah, because that's where God is. 
So let's look at her notion of God. This is on the professions of faith. There is a reality outside the world. That is to say, outside space and time, outside man's mental universe, outside any sphere whatsoever that is accessible to human faculty. There is a perfect world out there. By the way, this is so absolutely platonic, it's hard to imagine. When people say Plato founded the Christian church, they mean things like this. This notion that, that there is this perfect realm, this perfect sphere. Corresponding to this reality at the center of the human heart is the longing for an absolute good, a longing which is always there and never appeased by any object in this world. So we're in a flawed world, right? You may have noticed our world is flawed. I don't know. If you, if you haven't noticed, congratulations. But uh, yeah, so, so we live in an, a, a less than perfect universe. Bears come out of woods and kill children. Um, you know, the Nazis are marching through Czechoslovakia. How do you make sense of that? Ah, there's a realm outside the world that is perfect. And there's a corresponding realm in your heart, inside of you. Another terrestrial manifestation of this reality lies in the absurd and insoluble contradictions which are always a terminus of human thought when it moves exclusively in this world. As long as you think in this world, you get contradictions, contradictions, contradictions. And she's been thinking very hard. How do you escape these contradictions? Remember Bertrand Russell. This was his project. Ludwig Wittgenstein. This was his project. This, this attempt to say, well, in this world of contradiction, how do you arrive at something that is pure? They looked at math and logic. She looks to the human heart. She says, there's, there's something in the human that longs for the good. Where does that come from? How do we amplify that? Just as the reality of this world is the sole foundation of facts, so that other reality is the sole foundation of good. Again, this is pure Socrates. It comes to us, our sense of goodness, potential for goodness, from that other world, which is outside of our regular experience. It doesn't have anything to do with this world. Remember, God made this world and left. Wherever he went, that's where this stuff is coming from. Reality is a unique source of all the good that can exist in the world. That is to say, all beauty, all truth, all justice, all legitimacy, all order, and all human behavior that is mindful of obligations. Where do we get this? When you're mindful of your obligations to your heart's will for good, then you produce all the beauty, all the wonderful things that are in the world. And this is the one exception that she makes for what operates in this world that is related to the other one. It's us. We have the connection. We are tied to this invisible, absolute good through our hearts. And that's how good enters the world. An otherwise totally flawed, hopelessly contradictory, uh, and really often cruel, suffering-filled universe. At the human heart, there is a longing for an absolute good, a longing which is always there and never appeased by any object in the world. Those minds, those minds whose attention and love are turned towards that reality are the sole intermediary through which good can descend from there and come among men. This is the role of essentially the saints, the philosophers, the prophets. The intermediary between that good and the fallen world. That's where anything that's good comes from. 
Anything that's bad is from the world. By the way, this is also Manichaeanism. The notion that, that, that there's good and evil in the world. Um, and this is drawing a lot from that. Catholicism, Manichaeanism, and, and Gnosticism. She's drawing on heavily. Um, Although it is beyond the reach of any human faculties, man has the power of turning his attention and love towards it. That's back to the cells of the cloistered nuns. What are they doing in there? Ah, they're turning their attention towards the only spark of goodness in the whole world. And from thence to God. From whence it all comes. And then from doing that, they bring that goodness back into the world. This is her idea. She articulates this very clearly. This is her late work. Um, and she's arguing this out with two people of importance. One is uh, Thebon, and the other is the Jean-Marie... Wait, now i got to get these names right. Yeah, Gustave Thebon and St. Marcel. I uh, know. And, uh, wait, where's the other guy? Oh, Fr- Father Joseph Marie Perrin. That's right. Um, and they have long conversations and arguments about this because they're both traditional Catholics. This is, by the way, you might notice this is not traditional Catholicism. Um, But she says, all right, well, with your traditional Catholicism, what do you do about the bear that comes out of the woods and kills the children? You shrug your shoulders and say, well... She says, I'm not going to... She never shrugs her shoulders and says, well. She's not in her. She says, I have to answer that. And this is her answer. And this is how she became influential as a philosopher. Um, After her death, by by the way, she died of tuberculosis, but really she died because she starved herself to death. Um, She became demoralized by the war and the fact that they wouldn't send her to France to fight, um, where she wanted to die. Everybody kept saying, you're going to die. She said, yes, I know. That's what she wanted, martyrdom. She wanted to die fighting to preserve France, even though earlier she was arch-anti-nationalist. She realized that you know, nations perhaps have a place. Uh, and at the very least, we have to stop the Germans. And they, they, you know, they said, look, we're not going to send you. She worked for de Gaulle in London. But they said, you know, we're not going to send you to fight in France because you'd, you'd get more people killed. Um, you're not helping them, you're hurting them. I mean, this frustrated her greatly. Uh, and so she didn't know what to do. And she just sort of slowly starved herself to death. And when she went in the hospital, the doctor said, oh, we can cure you. We're going to put you on a diet. We have some stuff to treat tuberculosis now. And she just refused to eat, wouldn't do anything they told her. And they became very frustrated. And they would argue with her, right? which, of course, <laughs> this is a losing proposition because she's much better educated than they were and, 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 and very aggressive. Um, and so she, she basically starved herself to death in the hospital because of despair. She didn't know what else to do. Um, But these long conversations, letters, and notebooks that she had written because of her conversations with Thibon and Joseph Marie Perrin uh, survived and were published posthumously. 16 volumes, I think, now. Um, And what they showed, besides a person who was really wrestling aggressively with these questions, uh, what they gave was an answer to a world that has just been totally and completely blown apart. Six million Jews dead. Ten million, fifteen million Russians dead. All of Europe burned to the ground, more or less. The world turned upside down. The past eliminated. Germany gone. And where are we? What do you have? Well, you have communist Russia occupying half of Europe. You have Japan, 
with a nuclear bomb. And so people were looking around. They're going, Catholicism lost a little credibility because it had sided pretty heavily with, with the Germans for a long time, which was a problem. Um, and the Italian fascists were backed heavily. And, and so, to, so there was a, a real resistance then to the Catholic Church as traditionally understood. Pacifism has lost its way. Um, Simone Weil started very early as a pacifist. Um, later in life, she argued, she said, if, if Gandhi can be a pacifist while someone uh, rapes his sister and he watches, then I'm okay. But otherwise, I don't think you can be a pacifist. Because what do you do when you face someone who's so aggressive? Right? And so she, she wears the good that's in the world. When the good guys, the Americans, carpet bomb cities and, and drop nuclear weapons again on Japan, where's the good? How do you explain this? And so many thinkers, when they started reading Simone Weil, they started recognizing here's a mind, an incisive mind, who is wrestling with these problems. And her solution, while being religious, is not in any traditional religion. Like I said, you have to be pretty steeped in Catholic uh, traditions to, to, uh, to recognize, oh, look, there's like 15th century Catholicism. And oh, there's 9th century Manichaeanism. And oh, there's a few vestiges of the Gnostic movements of the early church. And she sort of squeezed those together, held them up to this world, literally gone crazy, right? You name the institution, it's gone or disreputable or destroyed. And she said, what's the answer? How do you address this? How do you answer it? Very difficult. And so on the questions of suffering, like I said, that she focused on all the time, she said, one, you make it personal. If anybody suffers, you should suffer. Uh, two, all power should be resisted, she finally decided. The only power that matters is power of the human heart, and that's looking elsewhere. That's looking outside of our experience of the world. Again, decreation. Louis Thibon, who she, who she uh, lived with and worked with, Louis Thibon? God, these names are floating in my head. So many French names. Thibon. Uh, she worked with him for a long time um, on his farm. He said the problem with Simone Weil is she's not human. <laughs> right? Any answer that would occur to the average person to any question, she didn't occur to her. She always came up with something like, wow, what is that? And sometimes it was just crazy. One of the ones she came up with was um, workers kept leaving farms, peasants, to go to cities. Um, and this emptied villages and the countryside. And this is bad. Plus, of course, young men go to the cities and they get all kinds of sins and iniquity and bad things happen to them. So she thought, well, how do you stop this? She said, well, what the young men really want is travel. So she came up with this plan. And remember, she's working for de Gaulle's government, so she's actually sending this in to ministry people. Um, she came up with this plan to say, what we'll do when they turn 18, 19, or 20 is we'll tour them. We'll take government-sponsored tours um, of other farms. <laughs> because what an 18, 19, or 20-year-old farm boy wants is not to go to Paris or Marseille. No! No, he wants to go to another farm. And then they'll see the countryside, and then they'll get home, and they'll be very happy, and then they'll never want to leave again. Now, on one hand, yeah, you, 
See, that's just not a human response. It's just so wrong, right? That this is not what they want. They do not want to tour other farms. They certainly want to go to the cities. Um, yeah, and so, you know, she's, so that was the problem. But the other side is, is many of her responses cut through a lot of the bullshit. People say, oh, socialism. She says, look, I tried socialism. I thought through socialism. I experienced socialism. Let me tell you what. What you get is bureaucracy. And you get the educated people running the show again, and you get a bunch of workers who don't know what the hell's going on. That's it. So forget this. Don't try to talk to me about this socialism stuff. We need a new form of government. I know that's not going to work. So many of her critiques, particularly she was an early one to turn against Stalin, and she started griddling her, her friends. They said, well, you used to, they used to call her the Red Virgin, right? She said, you used to be a communist. And she said, yeah, but look at the show trials. Look at the people who keep disappearing. Look at all the reports. And people would say, well... You know, that's different. You know, there are people are overthrowing the regime. Mistakes are being made. She's like, no, that's not good enough. Either you measure up or you don't. They aren't measuring up. And so, so this level of commitment to being honest as she could about things um, gave her great powers of insight. So on one hand, she attacks the Catholic Church quite aggressively on any number of issues. She's also a big one on, uh, of course, people know the Pope can forgive you for anything. Right? So you can go to the Pope and the Pope can forgive you. Ah, the Pope can also forgive you after you're dead. This is where indulgences came from. In the Middle Ages, you used to give money to the Catholic Church so that the Pope would sign off on all the sins that you or your relatives committed, even though they were dead. This is a good way to raise money, um, it turns out. The Sistine Chapel was funded by these, so I guess it went to a good cause. Um, but it, it was a... But this notion is still the idea in the Catholic Church that if you die and you committed a sin, the Pope can forgive you and then you will be lifted from hell to heaven. And Simone Weil points out that, like, so here's a man who has the capacity to save maybe a billion people from eternal suffering by just wishing it to be so, and he won't do it. That doesn't seem very good. <laughs> I think he has an obligation here. A moral obligation. To sort of, you know, give everybody a pass. Yeah, well, but eternal, that's bad. Here, everybody go free, right? Get a jail free card. But theoretically, the Pope can do this. And so she, she really went to some of these central issues. On the other hand, she didn't want to just say, well, that's it, religion's done. Get rid of religion. Because um, she's like, okay, well, what is there? And she said, our choice, she boils it down more or less, is to, we face a world that is senseless, irrational, and filled with pain and suffering that means nothing. Or, we have to have some way of arbitrating this. And she's not wrong here. Her brother, again, great mathematician, kept me up, up to pace on the developments of things like, look, We've, we've lost the capacity to arbitrate with the sciences. We don't have the truth in the sciences anymore. We've proved that that's not available. It's one of the truths we have. The sciences do not have the truth. Um, it's the project that failed with Russell and Wittgenstein. And Einstein and Gödel really ended those completely. Um, so where do you find it? And she said there must be, again she goes back to this platonic ideal, there must be this place out there that we can appeal to. And in this, she is the most direct, exact descendant of Pascal. 
who, when Pascal died, if anybody's read the Pensees, a, a wonderful work, it really is a wonderful work, but it's, it's his attempt to work out the same exact problems that Simone Weil is working with. Um, and like Simone Weil, he was almost entirely incapable of faith, pretty much entirely incapable, because he could argue himself out of anything. And so in his, in his coat, they found Soda's notebook, Pascal, um, and it contained all these arguments in favor of God. And then he would sort of break off in the third of the way through one because he realized, well, he could figure out an answer to that. And then he'd start a new one. And, 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 it, and he realized that with great insight this person had, um, he comes across all kinds of discoveries, but finally he can't prove God. It just demonstrates that he has no faith. right? As other people have said, anybody who had to try to prove God existed this hard doesn't believe in God. Um, but he also had a visitation. This was what his problem was. He was visited, he felt, he was visited by God. And he's like, okay, I believe, but how do I convince anybody else if I can't produce God? He recognized that he didn't have faith, because if you meet God, it's not faith. Simone Weil, same problem. She struggled with that. I feel like I've met God. How do I convince somebody who's probably not going to get to? And again, she returned again and again to this question of suffering. It's the suffering that makes it so. Because there's suffering in the world, there must be God, which is the opposite way we think of it, right? We think suffering proves that there's some, there's no God around, right? Because why would God let people suffer? No, 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 other way around. The suffering is the proof of the human capacity to be able to get in touch with God. And it's when we leave all this, when we uncreate ourselves and the world, that we exercise our freedom to destroy ourselves, that's when we get back to God. God created the world and pulled himself out of it to give us the freedom to leave the world and go with it. Uncreate. God creates, we uncreate. And that's how we get together. And so she finally renounces just about everything in the world. It's a huge renunciation. You know, people now talk about, oh, you know, maybe we should not drive our cars so much, and we should eat less meat, or we should go local food to save the planet. And it's, it, it, compared to what Simone Weil is talking about, that is all very lukewarm. I mean, she was hot. She was burning. She's like, look, we've got to renounce what? Everything. Most importantly, ourselves. That's the number one thing to renunciate. If we could just get rid of ourselves... What would be left? That spark of goodness that is in fact sacred. And so this is what she finally decides. She just says, you know what? I'm just going to destroy myself. Because what will be left is that little spark that makes all the goodness in the world possible. Um, and, and, and the father and Tuban argued with her vociferously about this, saying, you know, that might be a little extreme. But again, she was very much in this tradition of the cloistered nuns and monks, but particularly the nuns, who, who, who like I said, would just lock themselves up. It's a, a, a total self-effacement. You create a vacuum. And what's going to rush into that vacuum is basically grace. If you cease to exist, what will be left? Grace. And that's the only thing that makes sense in a world where, well, we tried 
capitalism, and that sort of blew up in World War One, more or less. We tried communism, that didn't work so good. We tried socialism, that didn't work so good. We tried, you know, we tried science, oh, nuclear bomb, thank you very much. Um, you know, what's left? She said, ah, not more, we don't need more, we need less. We need absolute, total self-abdignation. Create a vacuum, ah, and then grace has a place to be. Renounce the world, more importantly, renounce yourself. And keep part of that through suffering. Uh, curiously, the father also warned her about this. She said, you know, this becomes a type of luxury, all this suffering. You're sort of, you're sort of a sensualist with your suffering. And this, this frustrated her very much. She said, no, no, no. And she went, well, maybe. Because she was very honest, and so she struggled with this. Um, yeah. So what happens is, again, into this post-war world, where people of faith have had their faith wildly shaken, uh, where all kinds of systems that any thinking person reflecting on them has to say, look, these look bad. Uh, important to remember that in France, it was just before France was overrun, there was a popular front government. The progressives had won what we would in this country call the progressives. They had the government. They had the parliament. They had, the ju- they had everything. And what they do? Well, they up and, and threw it all away. Right? They ran at the first, first chance they got. And so, like, the progressives didn't know what to do. Everybody, no one knew what to do. And so, but here was this example of a, a woman, a young woman in this case. She died when she was 30, 34? 34, is that right? My math right there? Yeah, 34. Who had struggled very honestly with these questions. And her answers were not like anything you would expect. Get rid of the church, but keep your faith. Get rid of Jehovah, but keep God. Don't be a Jew anymore, because she, she really had renounced Judaism. In fact, she thought Jew, all Jews should be assimilated, because uh, she had no use again for the Old Testament. Remember, all the Old Testament is is, is the Hebrew, the Torah. Um, and so, you know, she's like, well, I have no use for that religion, but recognize the importance of it. And so she she managed to cobble together in, in her works that Saban published, um, sort of remnants of what she thought was good. Uh, and, and jettisoning most of, of what she disliked. And she built this again on the central core of the rejection of just about every aspect of the human that you can imagine. And she thought if we could do that, again, we would create this vacuum. And in that vacuum, we'd have space for something new and, and something she thought would be infinitely better. So, Simone Bile, ladies and gentlemen.